Growth Ministries presents Paul Steele, Senior Pastor of the Valley Church in Cupertino, California. Paul brings a message entitled, Free from the Law, with biblical reference to the book of Romans, chapter 7. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together, and even on a stormy night, how thankful we are for the rain. Lord, you send the rain on the just and the unjust. Provide your sunshine the same way. You're a God of infinite mercy. And we're so thankful for that because so often we need that mercy. And so we're thankful for the privilege that we have just now of coming together and talking about these things that will help us to share truth with other people, will help us to be able to minister even better in days to come and helping people understand what they have as far as their riches in Christ Jesus. So blessed to this end we pray, and we pray that Jesus Christ may be exalted in all that we say and do. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We want you tonight to turn to Romans chapter 7 to begin with. Romans chapter 7. The words... The, the main thrust of the thing, I, the, all of the words are good in this old hymn, but the title of it is Free from the Law, and it begins, Free from the Law, O Happy Condition. Um, Jesus has died and there is remission. That's about as far as I can get. Uh, that statement, free from the law, is something that is one of those 36 things that Christ did for us on the cross, that did for us, obtained for us, so that at the moment of salvation becomes our permanent possession. We're not only blood-cleansed sinners, and not only joined to Christ in a union, identified with him in his death and in his resurrection, therefore a death to the old man, the crucifixion of the old man, the establishment of the new man. But we are also told in Scripture that we are free from the law. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the principle of being free from the law. What I'd like to do is to try to uh, define that briefly and then look at some texts of Scripture and some uh, passages that will help us understand a little more about it. The first thing that I'd like to say by way of definition is that the law in the Old Testament is a perfect reflection of the character of God. That is the moral law as laid out in the Old Testament and then repeated with the exception of the stringent regulation on the Sabbath, uh, every single part of God's moral law is reestablished in the New Testament under grace. Now when you understand that, then when we, when we sing the song free from the law, we certainly are not free from the, from the character of God, nor are we free from reflecting the likeness of the character of God. We are free from the law because Scripture declares it to be so, but Scripture makes clear that we understand by way of definition, that when it speaks of the law in that manner, it is speaking of a merit badge. 
it is speaking of a meritorious system whereby a person might obtain righteousness by living up to a certain standard. The difference between the Old Testament and the New, the Old Covenant, if you please, and the New, is that under the Old Covenant, the rule of law was, do these things and thou shalt live. The law in the new, the, the same law, the same moral standard, because it's based on the character of God, is found in the New Testament, and the difference is that in the New Testament it says, live and thou shalt do. That's the difference. It's a matter of the principle of merit on one hand, and the principle of having the Spirit of God live out the character of God through our lives on the other. We are free from the law in that we are not bound to seek to gain merit by any kind of legalistic standard, even the best possible standard, which is the character of God. The law, then, as it's spoken of in the New Testament, is speaking of the system of the law, not the individual laws. Charles Ryrie, in his uh, excellent book, a book, by the way, I would recommend that everyone read, is Balancing the Christian Life. He deals, first of all, with the fact that in the Old Testament there were these laws that were codified during the Masoretic period, 365 specific commandments that were listed down by the rabbis that they found as they read through the various texts of scripture, things that the people were indeed to do. They had no ability to accomplish that, no ability to do that, and therefore the law as it's presented in the New Testament as a system is called a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The purpose of the law in the Old Testament, uh, not only reflecting the glory of God, but the purpose of the law in the Old Testament was very clearly to demonstrate to men how helpless they were. An amazing thing is that whereas in the Old Testament God placed a law which man couldn't keep, he provided in grace a sacrificial system. He over here put the standard of the law and then he said, now do this and thou shalt live. If you don't do that, Here's the sacrifice. Here's the provision. And of course, the idea was that every time an Israelite recognized that he had sinned, that he had broken the law, he comes and he offers his calf or his bull or his goat or his lamb, whichever was appropriate in some cases for the poor, a pair of turtle doves. And he would make that offering, and that offering then would satisfy the just demands of a holy God, and he could go on from there. But the problem was he had to keep coming back over and over again. The book of Hebrews teaches this very, very clearly. Because man simply couldn't keep that law. In the New Testament, we have a given. Christ, in his ministry during the transition period in his three and a half years before the cross, says to his disciples for an example in John chapter 15, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So you see, it's not only that the system has been laid to rest as a system of meritorious works, but there's a whole new 
standard, a whole new principle whereby one lives the Christian life, whereby one, if you please, keeps the moral law of God. The moral law of God reflects his character. God says in the New Testament as well as the Old, Be ye holy, for I am holy. He says in the New Testament as well as the Old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He says in the New Testament as well as the Old, Thou shalt not have any other God before me. All of those things are still the standard. But in the New Testament, without me, you can do nothing. Don't try. Rather, trust. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear that what God has done is he's laid out his promises. He's, in, he's given us his character. He's given us his life. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. We have all of those resources, draw on those resources in order to accomplish what the Israelites could never accomplish by a meritorious system. The difference largely is that we do not keep the law to impress God. Rather, God impresses us with his own character and transforms us by his own grace and gives us a whole new principle of life whereby we live. Now, in regard to this, there are a number of things that I think are important. The law, if thought of as merely a code, as merely a moral standard, is, has not been done away. All right? As a standard of conduct, it's good and it's right. There are too often that people think that to be free from the law is to be excused from doing the things that the law prescribes. Because the law is holy, the law is just, the law is good, it's difficult for many to accept the New Testament teaching that, that um, the law is not prescribed as a, as a rule of life for the believer. They ask the question, why indeed should the believer do other than to pursue that which is holy and just and good? On the other side, you have the uncompromising warning to the Christian that by the death of Christ, there is a freedom from the law. John chapter 1, I, I wanted to, I, let me read first of all Romans 7. Um, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. John chapter uh, Romans chapter 7 says this, Are you do, do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. If then, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Now he uses the divorce principle, or the, the principle of uh, marriage for life, as an example of the fact that, that when, when Christ died for our sins, the law as a system, the law as a standard of conduct in the sense of being, uh, of, of being a requirement for life was done away with. And we are joined to a whole new person. Um, we, we, as long as Christ was alive before his death, 
we, we were already married, or that is those in that time, the Jewish people were married to a law that they couldn't keep. Very discouraging situation. They had no other standard. God didn't give a whole bunch of 15 different alternatives. He said, uh, my will is that you perfectly keep this law. If you don't perfectly keep it, then you die. <laughs> and that was the standard. There's no question about it. And of course, forgiveness by the, by the provision of the blood. But even that, in a very real sense, was a real nuisance because a man would go out and he'd probably, he'd probably break the law again before he got back to his tent. And so he would have to turn around, pick up another lamb, come around. You know, they said that, they said that uh, Josephus uh, claims that on the Passover uh, time, when our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, that there was that week of Passover in the neighborhood of two to three million lambs that would have been slain. That was because for that Passover time, it was another one of those times where people came and identified their sin with the, the sacrifice and kept that aspect of the law, which was the ceremonial law. There was that much sin out there, all right? I think we get the idea we only sin in the 20th century, but there was that much sin then. People had to deal with sin. People had to have the covering of the blood. And so a man was, it was almost a full-time job just dealing with his sin must have been terribly frustrating for these people. And they would try and try and try, and uh, all the time, hidden, veiled, if you please, in their own system, there was the whole system and idea of grace. That's why Jesus Christ should have been such good news to those people, though he proved not to be because they rejected him when he came. But it's now that we are wedded to a new, a new bride. We are made, in that sense, uh, free... From the free to the law, the law has died. The old system has died. We are now free to devote ourselves to a new husband, if you please. That's the principle brought out here. Now, as I was saying, go to John chapter one. We'll just look at a few verses of scripture that that emphasize this new freedom and the fact that we are living under a new system. It says. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, this is an editorial comment by John. In other words, John the Baptist is uh, there uh, in verse 15, bearing witness. But the apostle John, having figured this out, in his prologue in the book of John, he inserts some, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, editorial comments. His comments at the very first, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, were not words spoken by Jesus Christ. They were not words spoken by John the Baptist. They were words, words written as a prologue to the whole story of Jesus Christ, including the seven IMs and the seven signs, semions, the attesting sign that John selected in order to demonstrate that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And he is showing here that the, the old system of the law has been put away. That was under Moses. Moses brought, God gave Moses the, the law on Mount Sinai, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And it goes on and talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is really the explanation of God. Go with us then to Acts 15. Acts 15. 
and verse 24. This, of course, is the Jerusalem Council. And uh, they are asking the question concerning circumcision. He says, since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words on settling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same thing by word of mouth. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Now let me paint the scenario in case you don't remember it. The Apostle Paul, Peter was there, James was there, a number of others, came to Jerusalem for what was the first church council. There were a number of people who had been saved. That is, they'd made a decision, a personal decision for Jesus Christ. But then they had, as they began to bring Gentiles into the church, they began requiring that they be circumcised according to the law. It was a, it was a matter that was, first of all, a social custom under Abraham, and then later on uh, became a custom under, uh, or I mean, a part of the law that men would, would carry in their bodies the sign of their cutting away of the flesh, the sign of their specialness, and that was in circumcision. It was circumcision under the law. And they, the, the, the Jewish Christians were very offended that here were Gentiles who were claiming equal status in the church. But they were Gentiles, and Gentiles at that time, for no reason whatsoever, other than the fact that they didn't follow that custom, they didn't, nobody believed at that time there was any medicinal effect to the whole thing, they were simply not circumcised. And the Jews felt they couldn't possibly be really a part of what they saw still as an exclusive Jewish church that God had let Gentiles in the back door, much like the proselyte system of the nation of Israel had been all, all along in history. They felt that, that circumcision had to be a requirement because there was a sense, they felt, that they had to be Jews in order to really count. And that uh, they, of course, were harking back to the fact that when they built the, when Herod built his temple, the um, uh, temple that was still under construction at the time of Christ, uh, they had what was called the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not allowed into the inner court. Jews were allowed in there as long as they were circumcised. But Gentiles weren't. The Gentiles were kept on the outside. They were always outside looking in. Some of them were God-fearers. Uh, that is, they were seeking. Uh, some of them, that's probably what the Ethiopian eunuch was. Uh, there were some that were, that were proselytes. And when they became proselytes in Israel, then they circumcised them as a matter of course, and they became Jewish in culture and thinking in every, every possible way. They had to give up their Gentileness in order to become a part of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish religious system. They had to do their sacrifices and keep the feasts and do all of the rest of it. And so here, 
here was the thinking that was in their minds. And this was a transition period. It was a very hard thing for them to, to accept. You've got to put yourself in their shoes. That's the thing I'm trying to do. Because it, it's, it, it, there are social customs in Maury's um, often are difficult to change. And so here was a great change that had come. Not only the transformation that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah and that uh, they had placed faith in him, but they were throwing away all of their Jewishness by letting these Gentiles come in and be full, full members. And the Jews were bothered by this. And so what they, what they began to do is they began to, uh, to, to uh, convey the concept and the idea they had to be circumcised in order to really be saved. They were adding works to salvation. Book of Galatians was written to help us understand that particular problem. But in Jerusalem, they made the decision, no, you don't have to do that. They did make requests. They, they requested that there were some things in Leviticus chapter 18 that were, that were very deeply ingrained social customs um, that were related to the law uh, and, and they asked just as a courtesy that the rest of the church not be involved in these things. Uh, the first thing was that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols. Um, that was something which you remember at a later point in church history, Paul made plain there's nothing wrong with doing that. But for expediency, for the sake of the weaker brother, sometimes you shouldn't do it. And so this was something that was not strictly forbidden in term. It had to do with the ceremonial difference. And the Jews had this locked into their thinking. This is something that, that a Christian just shouldn't do. And so for the sake of the weaker brother, for the sake of the transition period, uh, that was one of the things that they shouldn't do. The other was to abstain from blood, that is, from eating things that were not properly bled in a kosher and proper manner. Probably a healthy thing, um, but uh, if a person happens to like blood sausage, as my, uh, my father-in-law does, uh, that uh, happens to be perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that, except I don't think it's probably good for you. But uh, uh, nevertheless, as far as offending God is concerned, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But you see, for a Jew, that was just absolutely deplorable. So they asked that they not do that as well. And then also, from things strangled was something else that was dealt with there. It was another one of those things where uh, the Jews always properly bled their, uh, their animals. It had to do with their understanding of the life and the blood and all that was involved in the sacrificial system. And again... Uh, Gentiles had no scruples about that at all. And they would think nothing of taking a dove as an example and choking it to death, putting it on the grill, cooking it, and often eating what they thought was a delicacy, the innards and all. All right? So this was absolutely nothing unusual for the Gentiles, and Christians probably were doing that. And the, the brethren in Jerusalem were saying, look, let's not be legalistic about this, but just think, if you were a Jew you would be offended. And so rather than, rather than uh, saying, let's lay down a hard and fast rule, let's, let's just be wise about that. And for the sake of unity and to keep it from being a Jewish church here and a Gentile church here, to have integration in the church, if you please, uh, then, then lay that aside. 
It's always been curious to people why he also includes here fornication, primarily because the word porneia is often uh, taken to mean a sexual sin. But in the law, it had a particular application. And it's in the same text that deals with these other things in Leviticus 18. It had to do with what was called the marrying of next of kin. There was a, uh, there were, the Gentiles practiced this freely. And when I say that, you have to understand that uh, not only didn't the Jews allow the marrying of cousins, but uh, even to a third and fourth uh, situation, mother, mothers-in-laws, uh, third aunts, uh, people like this, there was no intermarriage on that level. And, um, and so the word porneia, which is used here and translated fornication, wasn't really dealing here with sexual sin of any kind, as some people think of it today, but rather it was dealing with the whole idea of the marrying of next of kin according to Gentile custom, but certainly uh, prohibited in every way in Jewish custom. And uh, it was something that, that incidentally was, uh, had become, it was very important uh, to the Jew because uh, when a person, when a person married into a family, they, the, the, the way the Jews looked at the family was the huge extended family. And no, just the same as a person should not marry his brother or sister, you also don't want to marry any of the relatives that have been brought into that circle. That was the principle. That was the idea. And to do so was called porneia, called fornication and uh, considered to be wrong. And once again, this was something where there was a, it was an issue of courtesy. They were saying to the Gentiles that when you do that, it's offensive to the Jews. And uh, there are similar situations today, I should just say this, uh, in terms of, in terms of uh, certain um, uh, customs that, that may or may not be right or legitimate. I would, I would say that one of the areas... Um, is the marrying of a of a black person to a white person? Uh, there is an area where um, uh, I think there are there are three possible reasons why that's not a good idea. Uh, the first reason it's not a good idea uh, is that generally speaking, you do not uh, you cannot obtain the full blessing of both sets of parents for whatever reason. Where it may be prejudiced, it may be wrong, and everything else, but the fact is that, that it's impossible to, to obey Scripture in regard to honoring your father and mother if you marry against their wishes. And if you marry against their wishes, in this came what case, whatever the wishes are, I think that a person makes a mistake. Um, uh, the second reason is because generally the children of a mixed-color marriage uh, often have far more suffering than than they should. Uh, South Africa, I, I get a little tired, frankly, of hearing about whites discriminating against blacks in South Africa. Do you know why? Because blacks discriminate as strongly against what they call the coloreds, which are the half-breeds uh, in South Africa, as the whites do against the blacks. And the whites also see the half-breed, as they would call them, being outcast. 
It's a terrible, deplorable situation. They treat them as less than human, and uh, in fact, they, they probably are the most persecuted part of this racial situation that's very complex in South Africa, and suffer far more than the blacks, by and large, because they suffer both from the blacks and from the whites. And, and, and nobody, do you ever see anything in the paper about that group? Not very often. And so uh, the, I think that, that that is something that, that uh, has to be taken into consideration. A third thing has to do with culture. Uh, not that it's always true, but generally speaking, people of one race have different cultural mores than another race. And uh, in the process of that, it, uh, we deal a lot with, with people uh, in, that have the mixed the mixed marriages, racial marriages, and there are there are almost unfair struggles that come because of great cultural gaps, and uh, that is uh, just another consideration. I personally like to counsel people to marry someone that uh, where you where you have a number of things where you have in common, and sometimes uh, someone from a black uh, town in Mississippi, uh, and this can happen even within the race, you understand. Now, it doesn't have to be black and white, but a lot of times uh, the culture of one grouping of people is often so different than the culture of another, and unless there's been some good transition, it can be a very difficult marriage. Now, I just mentioned that because I'm also going to say this. Biblically speaking, there's nothing wrong with a white person marrying a black person. But you see, uh, at this particular juncture in our church history, it would be very, very difficult, let's say in a little church in Mississippi, a little Southern Baptist church in Mississippi, and here the pastor's son decides he's going to marry this black girl. Biblically, there's nothing wrong with that. These other things may be problems and should be considered. Biblically, there's nothing wrong with it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's, I'm not against it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But in that little church in Mississippi, they're not about to accept those kids in that church simply because, and probably won't even let them get married there, because they have all of this prejudice buildup. And you're not going to see that happen overnight. 20 years from now, maybe. Tonight, probably not in that particular church. You remember the big uh, flap that there was over, over accepting black members in Jimmy Carter's church in Plains, you know? Now, all I'm saying with that is this, that this was the same kind of cultural thing. Here people were coming into the church, newly married, and they had married across these family lines. And it wasn't making for fellowship, and it was creating this division. So they took a stand on the other things and they asked for courtesy and patience on these things because they recognized that there had been a change in the ceremonial aspect of the law and that would include circumcision. So there's another aspect of the law that has been done away with in Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6. In verse 14, <coughs> For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, you're under grace. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
I want you to look at verse 6. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory on his face fading as it was. How shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Now the ministry of condemnation was the law. The ministry of righteousness was grace. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. If the law was good and just and right, the new covenant, the new principle, far better. It outshines it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Having therefore such a hope, we use our great boldness in our speech. And we, and, and are not as Moses, who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Now, what he's saying here is this. The glory that Moses saw, and this was an illustration on the part of Paul of the law, the glory that they saw was very real. In fact, when they saw him shining with this glory, he, they turned away. They couldn't look on him. They couldn't stare on him. It was like looking into the new day, noonday sun. And so it was a very, very impressive thing. Moses would go in before the Lord and he would come out shining like that. But Moses made a big discovery. And that was that the, the shining was temporary. It was, it was like, these, like these little luminous crosses that we used to get at Bible camp, you know. You hold them up to the light and then you take them into the dark and they shine. But then they fade, 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 fade. They have to constantly go back for more light in order to keep the thing going. Well, Moses was like that. And so he put the veil over his face primarily so they wouldn't see that this thing was fading away all the time. People say, well, he put the veil because people couldn't look at him. No, that, was, that wasn't a problem. Uh, they, they couldn't look on him, but that was thrilling. I mean, that was an exciting thing. They put the veil on because next day it didn't shine as much, and the next day it didn't shine as much at all. And Paul is saying, look, that... that that law, which was a condemnation, it was a good thing. It, it, it had glory in it. The glory was the manifestation of the character of God. But as a system, it faded away. But there is a glory that doesn't fade away. In fact, it gets more and more and more and more and more. And that's under the new covenant because we have Christ himself who has the right kind of character that, and was the perfect fulfiller of the law living in us. See, that makes all the difference. And so it's a totally different kind of glory. Then Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. Galatians 5 and verse 18, where it says this. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the Apostle Paul has talked already about the fact that the flesh desires, uh, has a desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They're in opposition. It's a fascinating text, really. Uh, let me just begin in verse 16, where he says, But I say, walk by means of the spirit, and you will not, double negative, ume, double negative, never 
never carry out the desire of the flesh. Someone has suggested we won't, we won't be sinless, but we'll sin less. We we will have we will have a whole uh, as long as we are doing. Uh, walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, Spirit of God in control of our life, doing what we know pleases God, doing the will of God from the heart. As long as we're doing that, we're not doing the desires of the flesh. He says in verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire, that's epithumia, it means that he has a deep, uh, intense desire against the spirit and the word against is the word the little preposition preposition of norms and standards kata k-a-t-a if you transliterate it kata in its literal form means down it means domination and wherever you find that uh, uh, that word in the greek new testament you immediately realize we're not talking to one another feather we're talking a ton all right we're talking heavy heavy uh, pressure heavy, heavy uh, uh, intenseness that is here. And so it's an intense kind of, uh, of a little pronoun and particle in a text like this. And what it means is that the, that the Spirit of God, or that the flesh, has an intense desire, epithumia has to do with desire, to defeat the Spirit. It's going on inside of you right now. Uh, the, the, the flesh has this desire to defeat the spirit. The spirit has this intense desire to uh, defeat the flesh, same words, and these are in opposition to one another. The word ketai, uh, ketai is the root, um, is the root here. And it is preceded by a preposition, anti, which means against. And uh, uh, so what you have is you have an against uh, KT. The idea of KT is simply to dig in for trench warfare. It's a military term that has to do with, with holding a line. Now, we don't know much in modern warfare, particularly in the Vietnam era. We don't know as much as we used to about holding a line. The problem with the Vietnam War was that there were no lines. There were no boundaries. The war went off in, in spots, a very difficult kind of fighting to have. But particularly in World War II, what they would do is they would bring in a caterpillar, uh, heavy equipment, and they'd dig a hole, a trench. And the soldiers were told to hold that line. Just hold it. No matter what's coming at you, you, keep, you stick up your head. And, and, the, and the Germans, so a few hundred yards away, uh, would dig their trench. And they were going to hold that line. And what they would do generally is uh, when one of the Germans would put up his head, they'd take a pot shot at him and vice versa. A beautiful little story that comes out of World War I um, where, where this was being done when it was on Christmas Eve. And in the trench where the Americans were holding their line, they began to sing Silent Night. And across the way, the Germans picked up the strain and began to sing in German Silent Night. And they had one peaceful night that night. And uh, But that was the idea, uh, that that uh, they're not going to move, you're not going to move. You're, and, and when reinforcements maybe come, then you jump from your hole into their hole and they run. And, and then back and forth, and that's the way wars wars were fought in those days. And the same thing was true in the, with the Greek armies, and the, they were most familiar with the Greek warfare. 
Alexander the Great was a genius, really. He's the one that invented the Koine language so that he could, he could quickly teach military commands that couldn't be misunderstood as he took others into his armies, as he defeated them uh, in his campaigns. But he was also a military genius, and he, he knew what it was to hold the line on the, on the advancing armies and to, to simply say, we will not retreat. And uh, many, many times there were those that refused to give up and therefore ultimately were overrun by superior forces and, uh, and died. But that's the picture that's being drawn here. Here they were, dug in for trench warfare. The Spirit of God is not going to surrender. The flesh is not going to surrender. And so the one that picks it, pokes his head up, the other one's going to take a pot shot at him. That's exactly the idea of what we're saying here. So the Spirit's against the flesh, and the flesh against the Spirit, and they're in opposition one to another, so that you may not do the things that you please. In other words, you cannot keep doing the things that you please. You just can't coast in the Christian life. That's what it's saying. Because of the fact that there is this permanent kind of warfare uh, that is, that is uh, set in where the spirit's against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, within you there is this battle. That's why we have to be sober and vigilant because Satan wants to utilize the flesh to bring us down to defeat time and time and time again. And it's on that basis then that he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, as long as the Spirit of God is in control, you don't have to worry about the nuts and bolts of obeying the law. Because when you're obeying the voice of the Spirit, you will be obeying the law, and you don't have to think, oh, this is wrong, adultery is wrong, I shouldn't do adultery. You don't have to think about that. Because you are following the prompting of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God never breaks the law. All right? That doesn't, again, that doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it sure does mean victory for the believer. Now, in Romans chapter 6, Romans 6 and verse 14, which we read a moment ago, I want you to look at it again. This is the only passage where the child of God is told that he is not under the law. Romans 6, 14 for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Anybody that says you're not under law, that individual is referring to this text, and it's right. When you think of the law as a system, we are not under law, not under the system of law, we are under the system of grace. Romans chapter 7, as we read a moment ago, says that we're both dead to the law, and we are delivered from the law. So, again, when you take the fact that every principle of divine law has been recapitulated in the New Testament with the exception of the Sabbath law, you, you have to recognize that the law is very much in grace, even as grace was very much in the law. There is, God has not changed. God is immutable. His character is the same. So the solution to the problem is found in, that, in the fact that the law is a system of human merit, pure and simple. Grace is precisely the opposite. Grace is not a system of human merit, but rather it is that where God has accomplished the work on our behalf. Now you see, since every believer, as we've already seen, is accepted in the Beloved One, 
And it's because we stand forever on the merit of Jesus Christ, the, the application of a merit system for salvation is ridiculous. That is out of the picture. It's out of the way because we do not have to keep the law in order to be saved on scriptural, unreasonable, absolutely wrong for a person to be placed back under a law where he is mechanically doing these things in order to obtain merit with God. The merit that we have with God is the person of Jesus Christ, pure and simple. So we never have to put ourselves back under that system any longer. But when the principles contained in the merit system, that is the moral law of God, reappear in the injunctions that deal with the grace of God, it's always making an assumption. And the assumption is, it is making the assumption on the basis of the new ability that the believer has to live in accordance with the plan and purpose of God, i.e., the indwelling spirit of God, the completed canon of scripture, the person of Jesus Christ, who is represented by the Spirit of God, Christ living in us, the resurrection power of Christ, etc., etc. It is always assuming that. So in the New Test, in the Old Testament, when it said, "Do this and thou shalt live," in the New Testament it says, "Live and you'll do this." The end result is the same. That is, the law is still the same. Why would a person in the Old Testament not commit adultery. He would not commit adultery because he wanted to merit salvation. And so often they failed. Then they go, of course, to the sacrificial system, which was a system of grace in type and picture. Why doesn't a person commit adultery in the New Testament? Because he is the child of God, because he does have the Spirit of God within him, because he has, because he's a part of the family of God, and therefore wants to please God like a son wants to please his father, not so he'll get his allowance, which is the ideal situation, but because he loves his father. The response is the same in both cases for the righteous man. But in one case, he's doing it to attain favor. In the other case, he is not doing it to attain favor. Now, it's one thing to do a thing contained in the law in order that one be accepted or in order that one be blessed. But it's a wholly different thing to do it because he knows that he's been accepted in the beloved one, because he knows that he's been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, because he knows that he's been seated with Christ in those same heavenly places, because he has the Spirit of God, because the Word of God is in his heart. All of those things are a part of what God is doing. Freedom from the merit obligations is that kind of liberty that Paul is speaking about when he's speaking in in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians in chapter 1 and says this it was for freedom that Christ set us free therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery all one has to do is read the latter part of the book of Galatians and you know that Paul was no antinomanian nomos is law Anti-Nomanian is anti-law. Paul was no anti-law man. In fact, you know what he says? 
and this is really strong in a book that is telling you that uh, you don't have to keep the law, right? It's really strong for him to say that the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strifes, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, uh, you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul sounds like he's back in the Old Testament, doesn't he? And if you didn't go on to the next verse, if you jumped in there after reading his disposition of the law and the fact that we are free and that we don't have to, uh, you, you, that we don't have to any longer live under the dictates of a system for merit, when he says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God if you do these things, if he stopped right there, people would be terribly confused. But the answer to it comes here, what it says in verse 22, having talked about the walk in the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. You see, there's no need for a law. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, remember, if you walk in the Spirit, you will never, never fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? He just said that. All right? The fact is, you only got 24 hours a day. And if you are doing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I got news for you. If you're doing that, nothing else, you, you don't have time to do these other things. They don't fit in that whole pattern. You're doing all these things. And uh, I'll tell you right now, you don't have to have Ten Commandments. That's the point. And what happens is that, in essence, when a person... When a person comes to the place in his Christian life where he's got all this excess baggage and is trying to sort out all of these things, trying to sort them out, boy, he's in trouble right there because what he's done, in essence, is put himself back under law. Because the Christian life is positive plus. You do these things, you don't have any time left over. Christ said, I must do the works to him that sent me while it is day. I, I spoke at a, a singles retreat for our single young people uh, a couple years ago. And uh, I, the question that they had asked me to deal with was the question of how do you, how do you juggle uh, your priorities? How do you keep your priorities? I said, okay, let's begin here. Let's go to Scripture and see all of the things that Scripture tells us we must do. Christ said, I must go through Samaria. I must do that. Why? Because it was the will of God. So we, do, we find out all the things that we must do. And then there are 50 places in the New Testament where it says we ought to do 50 things. And so you do the, thing, you do the things you must do, and you do the things that you ought to do. And then, what was the other one? One other thing that I had. The things that are declared to be his will. I said, you do those. Now, that's where we start. And somebody said, yeah, but if we do those, we don't have time for anything else. I said, that's it. You do the things that God tells you you must do, and you do the things he tells you you ought to do, and you do the things that God says explicitly are his will. And you just ran out of 24 hours. And you do that every day of your life. 
and you've got nothing left. There's, the, the Christian life is, is such a positive thing. I have young people come to me and they say, is it all right for a Christian to do this? And I said, or they'll usually say, is it wrong for a Christian to do this? And I'll say, well, uh, let's not talk about, about the wrong of it. I'm not sure I can answer that. But tell me, what's right with it? Try it sometime. It works. What's right with it? Nine chances out of ten, maybe 99 and 44 one-hundredths uh, times, they are going to say to you, something that is very selfish but I like it that's what's wrong with it <laughs> that's what's wrong with it because even the son of man did not please himself as long as you're pleasing yourself you're wrong that's what's wrong with it you say yeah but I mean I mean is it technically is I mean it doesn't say anything in the Bible about doing this and so no that, that, that's not it the, the Bible sure the Bible doesn't say anything about that but why do you do it because I like it that's what's wrong with it so you start out by trying to get them to say what's right with it but they never can tell you what's right with it because there's usually nothing right with it and they end up figuring out what's wrong with it because the thing that's wrong with it is the only reason they want it is because their old nature wants it. There's a craving and a desire to have that thing. All right? And so, once again, we're back to this idea then of being, of, of being lifted out of the law so that we don't have that yoke of bondage. We don't have that crushing load upon us. We don't have the, any kind of a system of, of works and merit. But rather, we are free from the law Romans 8, 2. We are dead to the law, Romans 7, 4. We are delivered from the law, Romans 7, 6, and Romans 6, 14, 2 Corinthians 3, 11, Galatians 3, 25. And it described those things, free from the law, dead to the law, delivered from the law, describe a position in grace before God that is rich and full and, and, and just loaded with everlasting blessings. We are free from the law. And Christ made that arrangement. Can you imagine that as Christ died on that cross, that which had held people in bondage for all of those years as God was dealing with his people Israel was suddenly loosed. And a whole new principle of life was freed. A principle that was available in the Old Testament but was not recognized by very many. It's fascinating to read what Christ said to his disciples. <clears throat> he told them, he said, the Spirit of God is with you and will be in you. And he told them over and over again that the Spirit of God is there. You see, the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go. And uh, even men like Saul, as wicked as they were, and Samson, uh, the, the, the Spirit of God could come upon them so that they could do exploits for God. And then sometimes God then had to remove that spirit. Samson had great strength when the Spirit of God was upon him. He was weakling when he didn't have it. And that was quite obvious. And ultimately his sin brought him to the place where God says, well, I can't use him any longer as an instrument. And so the Spirit of God was there and the Spirit of God was available and men could know that. And Christ said to his disciples, he said, if, if a father asks for, or a son asks for a fish, is his father going to give him a scorpion? 
If a, fa- if a son asks for bread, is his father going to give him a stone? How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? All right? And those frustrated disciples were, were, went right up, after the resurrection even, right up to the point where Christ is ready to ascend. And finally Christ called, over, called him over. Come here, come here, come here. And he breathed on them and he said, receive the Spirit. And some people say, well, why did he do that? Well, he'd been telling them they could have it. He now is about ready to leave. They were going to have 120 days in the upper room. Uh, Excuse me, not 120 days. They're going to have 120 people in the upper room that are going to be there for 10 days. A 10-day retreat with a bunch of carnal sinners who don't have the Spirit of God. And that thing would have broken up in three days if Christ hadn't breathed on them and given them the Spirit at that time. Now, the Spirit of God was going to come permanently after Pentecost, but they had to have something to tide them over because they were still in the Old Testament until Pentecost. And so they had, and so Christ, if you please, forced the Holy Spirit on them, gave it to them just like God had with Samson and some of these others, and gave it to them because that's, what does the scripture say? They were with one accord and with one mind. And I'll tell you, you'll never find any three people in one accord and one mind unless all three of them are filled with the Spirit. Absolutely not. It's one of the big bugaboos that we have in the church today in regard to church boards and all the rest of it. We've got so many people that are filled with the flesh instead of the spirit coming together trying to decide something and you say, and then it all breaks up in a big fight. It's obvious. They don't have one mind because they don't have the mind of Christ. They don't have the mind of the spirit of God. You're not going to decide spiritual needs on a basis of technical things and you're not even going to do very well with the technical things. All right? You've got to have the Spirit of God. One of the things that just irritates me that we can spend hours and hours debating about a subject. We don't spend enough time on our knees about a subject. We need to pray and we need to earnestly seek God and we occasionally need to pull aside and forget eating, which is what fasting really is, becoming so exercised in prayer that you don't bother picking up your meals on time. I believe with all my heart that God's people need to realize that he has made marvelous provision for us to have unity, marvelous provision for us to have knowledge, to have wisdom, to have understanding, and we just, we miss it. We try, and I don't care what anybody says, they can say, I'm under grace, I'm not under law, I can do as I please, or whatever they want to say, and they have all kinds of things for it, but what they're doing is they're placing themselves in an Old Testament system because they're not drawing upon the resource of the Spirit of God. And they, they don't know it, but they're trying to keep the law the Old Testament way, and it won't work. It never worked for them. We ought to recognize the failure and realize that the pedagogos that God has given us to lead us to Christ was the law. The law's main purpose was to show us we couldn't keep it so that we would look for answers somewhere else where we would say Christ was right. Without him, I can do nothing drives us to him as Mr. Maxwell's marvelous little book Crowded to Christ that's what happens we're crowded to Christ as we realize our own insufficiency as long as we think we're sufficient well then we're out on our own trying to keep the law on our own basis it doesn't work it doesn't work thank you Lord it's good to know these things good to review them probably for most of us we know them but you've told us in your word if you know these things happy are you if you do them We want to be happy, not in 
the carnal sense of just ordinary happiness, but in the sense of your true joy. Help us then to lay hold on what we have in Christ Jesus. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.